Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to episode 217 of the BJJ Brick Podcast. I'm Gary. I'm here with my partner in crime, Byron. How are you today, Byron? Gary, I'm doing great. We have been described by many, many person uh, as the queso and salsa of the BJJ and Nogi podcasting world. Well, I'm definitely the salsa yes. you know, because I'm a little bit spicy. I would have to say you're kind of cheesy, so you'd be the queso. <laughs> well played, Gary. I, yep. I do tend, to, if I have both in front of me, I uh, I don't know how to phrase this without sounding weird already, dip into both. <laughs> But I do like prefer the uh, queso over salsa, typically. You prefer queso over salsa? Like, if I have two cups of it, the queso will get hit a little harder. I, remember, I mix them, too. Yeah. I, I, I have heard a story that you actually drink queso. Is that true? That is not a true story. Okay. That's just one of the I, many, many myths that are surrounding this podcast. I had heard that you like to drink queso, and I thought it was a little strange, so I figured I'd ask you. I do have some great information for you, though, Gary. Craig Jones is on the show. Awesome. Craig Jones, I, I think everybody, unless you've been under a rock, has heard about uh, Craig Jones, uh, the remarkable run he had this year, ADCC. Uh, so uh, definitely uh, it's great to have him on the show here today. Yep, we get into discussions about that, and, and even uh, more interesting for me is uh, you know, Craig, what are you doing, you know, down there? How are you training and what are your uh, ideas towards, you know, coaching students and, and just getting advice from the guy? Great interview coming up, my friends. Definitely don't miss it. Gary, I've got a little podcasting desk here with computer and my desk is actually quite cluttered at the moment. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, man, it's kind of a mess. And it reminds me of jujitsu sometimes. If I'm rolling with somebody and I have no clear direction or my, my head's kind of all over the place, I don't do as well. Then if I have like a set goal or target to get to or uh, just just having that clear frame of mind is this is what I'm going to try to do, let's do that. Looking at my desk, there's a camera bag, there's a t-shirt, there's a jiu-jitsu book. There's some mail, <laughs> some podcast interview stuff laying around a glass of water. I got, I got like tons of stuff on my desk. And it's very cluttered and it's confusing at times if I'm trying to find something. I think that, you know, you look at jiu-jitsu, if you can clean it up, take out the stuff that isn't like your best stuff, at least when you're wanting to compete or to perform well, because it is important to kind of experiment and learn some other stuff as well. But uh, take out the, take off some of the clutter and really focus on the main parts of your game, that is when you get some really amazing results. Too much clutter, Byron, is never a good thing. Um, you know, I, I sit there and think, you know, my desk at work is always filled with clutter, but I do know where everything is. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess it's kind of, you know, one man's clutter is another man's not clutter. Yeah. If, that if your desk, when you got there, let's say you had spent the the day before cleaning it up and making it perfectly clean clean and there was like one task on the desk one set of papers or you, you like when you got there you would say this is what I'm doing right now and it would 
to me it would scream like that would get your attention it's like having an empty inbox in your email it just it's where you focused and i think that that's easy to kind of look at jujitsu on that and say do you have focus on your game or are you just trying random moves all the time and not trying to string anything together you have no organization in in where you're going i I do think you know i definitely am one that lives by the messy desk (laughs) lifestyle as well carrie but i think i'd be a little more productive if i think the hour spent in my chair working on the podcast or whatever would be more efficient if i had a, a, a better system and had a little more focus when i sat down and didn't check facebook first thing or anything like that well, you know, I know we've talked about this a couple times, but that's why you send me an outline for each and every show. Um, you know, it kind of gets rid of the clutter. We could talk about what we're going to talk about beforehand, but we're going to forget half of it. There's going to be no rhyme or reason. And the same thing with our with our podcast show notes. Uh, it kind of keeps us on task, kind of tells us where we're going, and, uh, you know, reduces the clutter. Hopefully it uh, produces a better show. Yep. It's important to get the most out of your time. Uh, on the mats. And if you're in your first year of jiu-jitsu, I've got something for you, my friends. It's called Your First Year of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Audiobook by yours truly. And uh, this book has been a staple of the BJJ Break podcast and really helping people get into that first year and get the most out of that and get on the right track. Everything from finding the right gym to what to expect and to what you're going to be doing your first month of training, all the way up to if you want to do a tournament, what to uh, get out of that and how to get ready for the, a tournament and to do well. It's a little over two hours, two and a half hours of content. It's eleven ninety nine. It's very similar to a podcast, but uh, <laughs> it's more organized, unlike my desk. I really have uh, chapters laid out and really just get to the point and, and really want to help everybody get better. There will be a link to it in the show notes or on the website, real easy to find. It's eleven ninety nine. The money that we get from that goes and helps keep the podcast going strong, my friends. So thank you so much for that. There's also a thing on there where you could donate a little bit more. That's been happening more and more. Definitely appreciated the people that kick in a couple extra bucks. You know, Byron, I did want to let you know, uh, Byron does have another audio book, uh, Six Games for BJJ, which um, if you listen to the show, we talk probably talk about it every other week. But, you know, I always kind of make up, games that didn't make it to the book yeah you know that's uh, my little thing I like to do to drive Byron crazy but I actually have started playing that game horse that I made up on the show with one of my training partners we did it uh, yesterday and uh, it has actually been working so Byron I think when you edit the book you could add horse in there too Uh, I have been using it we'll do part two to that book Yep. the next game is to play and You know, it sounds like Horace is a version of the basketball game where you get a letter. Uh, actually, Gary's just writing his opponent like a pony. Yeah. It's kind <laughs> of awkward. <laughs> no, actually, what we've been doing is, uh, you know, when you're rolling, the first person who gets a tap, let's say I tap Byron, you know, with a Kimura. Byron then has three minutes to tap me with a Kimura, or he gets an H. While he's trying to tap me with a Kimura and I'm trying to defend the Kimura, I can still also tap Byron. And he doesn't. He automatically gets an H, and then he's going to have to tap me within three minutes on the next move. So it's it's kind of fun. We've been uh, having a good time doing it. Cool. Just have to just have to use your mind. Well, that's where I I suffer. Yeah, we know. And I think it's because <laughs> you've been drinking too much queso. <laughs> Something to help my mind a little bit here is the quote of the week. 
This quote is from William Arthur Ward. Uh, That's a lot better than our author last week, which yeah. was IP Freely. <laughs> the quote is, Feeling gratitude and not expressing it is like wrapping a present and not giving it. And I think that's a, a good thing to say to really anybody in any part in your life. If you feel grateful for something, tell somebody that. It was just last week. I, tr- I trained at Fox Fitness here in town, and, and Jake Fox, the, the main man, uh, went on a Wait, trip. Byron, Byron, yeah. you're the main man. No, I, I am uh, not anywhere near that status. But, Byron, but, you're my main man. <laughs> Okay, Mr. Salsa. Uh, <laughs> but Jake uh, and and his wife Kim went to South Korea to compete in the. She competed in the world world's kettlebell competition. She's a world champion. She defended it, her title. I think she has a title, and uh, she brought home another world champion for that. It's really amazing. I get a, you know, she's always in the gym, lifting kettlebells, doing her thing. She's really a, a fascinating person. Anyway, Jake was gone. And a couple of the classes I was able to kind of pitch in and, and teach a little bit. And and I was showing some of the stuff I like to do with leg drag. Most of the stuff I picked up by uh, Tim Sled's uh, DVD. Uh, but uh, just kind of sharing what I do and, and, and what what I'm doing when I'm passing or maybe, you know, retaining side control. I do that a lot. I leg drag a lot as they try to, try to get their escape on. I get my leg drag on. Anyway... I just showed it and really drilled it, and, and it was I thought it was a good class, and everybody seemed happy. But afterwards, one of the guys grabbed me and was like, hey, really thank you so much for showing that. I've been curious about that. It really means a lot, and I really hope to get this into my game. And I was like, that made my day. Like somebody – I really felt like the people thought the class was fine, but somebody just take a few seconds after class and just told me that was awesome. How often do we do that to our instructors? I think pretty rare you know that's something we should do more is show gratitude towards the things that they're sharing and giving to us if you're gonna learn from a guy like craig jones he's got so many hours on the mat practicing his craft and working and developing and he just shares you a little bit of stuff that has all that stuff behind it that is backing his knowledge and his expertise in the area so there's really he's showing you stuff for a few minutes really he's he's really got to that point uh, with years and, and dedication behind that show thank you to those people thank them if you go to a seminar thank that person if you go to a class and you pick something up and it's good for you thank the instructor if a teammate shows something good thank them there's no point in as the quote says wrapping a present and not giving it I would say accepting a present and not saying thank you is is, is a way that uh, a lot of students accept gifts yeah you pay the, the, the instructor that's great but uh, giving them a verbal thank you it can be very motivating yeah, definitely. And especially, uh, you know, Thanksgiving is just past, you know, what are we thankful for? And, you know, as Byron says, it's always good to, you know, just say thank you to people. You know, it's going to make you happier for saying it because you're going to see the reaction of the, the, the person receiving that. It's going to make the receiving person that much more happier. And as you guys are more happy, it's just, you know, it's just going to, you know, just have a great effect. Everybody that you you pass for the next couple hours is probably going to be in a better mood because you're in a better mood. Um, so definitely don't ever be afraid to give thanks to, uh, you know, your training partners, you know, even don't ever be afraid to just say thank you to your training partner. He may not have taught you something today, but Hey, the guy is training with you. He, he's getting on the mat with you and you're having a good time. I mean, we don't show up to jujitsu not to have a you know, to have a bad time, we, we wouldn't be doing it. It's, you know, we do have fun doing it. And, uh, you know, when you get up off the mat, you know, thank your partner. Hey, I appreciate the role. Thank you. 
Yeah, I think that's something that we do here uh, locally pretty well is after the roll, you know, you thank the person and you accept the thank you and you say it back regardless of what happened. It could be, uh, you know, somebody day one versus, you know, a role with somebody who's been on the mat for 15 or 20 years. And, and, the, and typically the person with the more experience, you know, just because they're used to the situation, hey, thanks for rolling with me. I had, I had fun. You're doing good. And usually the person that's newer will follow that and thank them for their time as well. But uh, that's not a it's not an automatic behavior when you're trying to – it feels like the guy's trying to kill you, you know, like, oh, thanks yeah. for rolling. Like it takes it yeah. back to another level of uh, appreciation and teamwork. Yeah, I, I'm going to actually try to make that my goal for the coming year is to just tell everybody thank you each and every time. I roll with somebody. Gary, um, you basically, I think you do. You do, you're very grateful. I don't know if I mat. do, but I think I'm going to do that. And uh, each time somebody submits me, I'm going to say thank you. I mean, because in all reality, every time I get submitted, I'm learning. I'm, I'm learning something. And, and without being submitted, uh, you know, your game's going to get stale. How, okay. So, uh, I'm going to stop you right there because <laughs> that's, that's really a cool idea. But how do you do that without sounding like a little bit sarcastic? Okay, Gary, um, let's just say, Kachi and a guillotine. Um, you fought like crazy to get out. You almost got out, but then it you ended up getting caught and you get tapped to guillotine. I mean, your facial expression is going to show it all. You know, if you've got a really smug look on your face and you're saying thank you, you know, they're not going to accept that. Uh, but, you know, if you have a smile on your face, hey, thank you. You know, I appreciate that. I'm going to learn from that and, uh, you know, get back on the mat. Yeah. You know, slap I- hands. Yeah, I think that's and and then not roll like a jerk afterwards and try to yeah. like <laughs> Yeah, I mean your your actions speak louder than words, you know, your your facial expressions and your actions afterwards. So, you know, if I come out, you know, as I always like to say, like a wounded cougar, um, you know, you know I'm I'm upset about it. But in all reality, each and every time somebody catches me in something, I I don't care if it's a sweep, but I tell you yesterday I was rolling I got swept left and right, and I had a smile on my face the whole time because it gave me something to work on. Um, why am I getting swept like this, and, you know, what am I doing wrong? I've got something I need to work on, and, uh, you know, I was happy about that. Gary gets swept so much, they call him Dusty. Actually, they called me the janitor. The janitor. Clean it up. That's what I do in the sweeps, I guess. Yep. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> yeah. All right, without any further ado, we're really excited to bring you Craig Jones. Here we go. He is the most interesting grappler in the world. After winning ADCC, Barbara Walters interviewed him, and she cried. He once got lost in the Amazon jungle. He had a flying arm bar on an anaconda. Word on the street is, he once escaped Alcatraz by shrimp crawling. During The Ultimate Fighter, Dana White often calls him for a pep talk. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, I prefer the BJJ Brick podcast. Stay sweaty, my friends. All right, my friends, I'm happy to bring Craig Jones to the BJJ Brick podcast. Craig, welcome to the show. Uh, what's up, guys? We're happy to have you. We, this is uh, real exciting. Uh, definitely, you've you've recently turned a lot of heads with your uh, performance at ADCC, but you've been on the mat for many years. And But uh, could you just give yourself a quick little introduction of who is Craig Jones? Well, I've been training probably, probably 11 years now. But when I started, I started in a smaller city in Australia, Adelaide. 
so there really wasn't much of a scene going on. So it was sort of just like, um, it was just something to do. Like I didn't see even competition as a career, even the prospects of opening my own school in Adelaide, where there was only a couple of academies seemed like, uh, it just didn't seem like a possibility as well. So like I just, for the first maybe five, six years, just trained once, twice a week, just messing around. I was a pretty terrible student. Actually, I was just showing up to open mats, rolling, doing a lot of, uh, a lot of nogi only. So I'm like, I'm not a good role model <laughs> in that respect. But um, I remember I took a trip to the States in 2013 and I just saw what the sport was over there. I got my ass kicked as well. I remember I went to Cabrini's and I've never been tapped that many times in my life. And I saw sort of um, how popular jiu-jitsu was there and like I envisioned the same happening in Australia. So I really started dedicating myself to it, trying to get in on the ground floor with the scene here. I mean, we still had some successful guys like Kip Dale sort of paved the way for everyone, um, especially homegrown athletes. But that was sort of how I got started in jiu-jitsu and how uh, I progressed to where I am today. So it's just been really lots of hard work for the last four years trying to catch up to uh, the American and Brazilian counterparts. Yeah, well, looks like you have arrived, Craig. Um, so you mentioned a, a trip in uh, 2013 to the United States, and you really uh, had kind of an eye-opening experience rolling with people at uh, Cobrinhas, but uh, you found that motivating instead of demotivating. Yeah, well, it was a bit of both, right? It was, um, I mean, I actually love that. If I've ever gone to a competition, got my ass kicked, traveled around, someone's beat me up, like... I really find that motivating. Just like I'm a really competitive person, but I guess like uh, it motivated me to work hard, come back and measure myself uh, against those guys again. Because like I, I went to the States in 2013. I won the San Francisco Open at Purple Belt, but it was like, uh, I mean, no disrespect to the guys in the division at the time, but it was like in the scheme of things, it was quite an empty division talent-wise. I remember one of the best guys actually didn't make weight that day, so I got very lucky. But then... I trained at Cabrini's. I did a training camp for the Pan Amps and just, yeah, got kicked, my ass kicked at Pan Amps. I competed at Pan Amps first round. Hunter Ewald, a few of you guys might remember him. He submitted me in like 20 seconds. So it was like, it's quite heartbreaking after putting in all the work. But again, like, uh, it made me realize that in Adelaide, I wasn't even training properly. Like, obviously, like, I was just showing up, just showing up once, twice a week and rolling. Like, there was, there's no way I could have competed with the professionals in America. So it's sort of like, uh, yeah, it was heartbreaking, but it sort of it sort of fixed everything I was doing wrong. So okay, you started off training really just once or twice a week, no gi for five or six years. Oh, no, no gi and gi. Yeah, okay. I would do mo- both, but like I guess like a lot of uh, lower belts just love the love no gi. Why do you think that is? I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's just, uh, especially if you're not doing heel hooks and stuff and. Uh, the more advanced nogi techniques and like if you're not doing wrestling like you just i just i think it was simpler sort of um less handles less complicated like i like jiu-jitsu is hard enough and then when you throw the gi into it as a beginner you're like man i'm never gonna get good at this i see both i see like the new people that uh like really are attached to the gi and then i see the new people that who are a little afraid of it and they like Maybe just the the idea that they could escape a little bit easier without the gi on. Maybe is that? I think I so. Know. Yeah, I think it's a lot more forgiving. You know what I mean? Like you can, um, if you're like, especially for a younger guy, if you're athletic, you might and flexible, you might be able to slip out of things a bit easier. You might be a bit harder to hang on to, especially when it's sweaty. Because when you roll against a higher belt in the gi, it's just like a slow death. Do you know what I mean? You see a lot of no gi guys <laughs> tap yeah. higher belts, 
but you ne- you rarely see lower belts on a competition scene beat the higher belts. You know what I mean? I feel like the belts really mean something competition-wise in the gi, and in no gi, sort of anything could happen. Some of the other factors besides just flat-out skill, strength, speed, and endurance, and those kind of play in a little bit uh, more so, perhaps, maybe. You'd be more yeah. to answer that than me, but yeah, I kind of th- pick up what you're saying, I think. Um, could you describe your game, the type of uh, techniques you like to play, or maybe some of your st- strategy? Um, well, actually, since Purple Boat, I've probably been working on this uh, Z-guard style. of It's sort of like half-guard. Like, I found I never really liked playing the underhook half-guard because I've always been um, a lanky guy. I guess, like, uh, pretty physically weak compared to a lot of those um, muscly, smaller guys. So I always found, like, if I tried to play underhook half-guard, it was like, it was a rough time. I'd get, I got a skinny neck, so I'd get guillotine, dust. So I was sort of like, uh, I like the idea of having the knee up there to keep some distance. But in, but instead of the traditional sort of knee shield where you rest the knee on the pec, I found myself playing quite a low knee shield, so like right on the hip. And that's, that's the main guard I play now. And another factor is I play it on people's weaker side. So a lot of people will pull half guard and knee shield. And they like to play it on the opponent's right leg. I like to mix it up and throw it on the left leg. I actually just did this because my first coach was left-handed and taught everything on that side. But in retrospect, I think it's very good uh, strategically. Like It's great to play an offensive guard on a side people spend maybe 10% of their training time in. So I think that's led to a lot of submissions. But from that guard, I love like upper body attacks, definitely. I love the shooting a triangle from there off the overhook. I love attacking armbars, using kimuras for sweeps. And then obviously Nogi, uh, submission only. I love the entries to the leg locks from there. I find it quite easy to get the single leg exposition and make some cool transitions, even attack the inside heel hook on the same side as the knee shield. So to get this kind of straightened out in my mind, because it is audio, uh, you're saying the, the kind of the, the, the funny side, the side that nobody really plays as much. So your, it'd be your right knee that's, that's kind of blocking my hip movement. Yeah, exactly. Right? So it's like, yeah, so like I like to play the overhook on their left arm. And given that most people are right handed, I find like I'm taking the overhook with the right. So I've got to like what people would imagine. They think I'm strong or something, but I'm, it's actually, I'm using my right hand overhook on their weak side. So like it just adds to the effectiveness of it. And are you left handed or right handed? Right handed. So it, it's, you mentioned it, that it was really your coach was left handed and your coach wanted to maybe work passing on the on the on that side and so you developed your guard on that side is that right kind of like he he was left-handed but he would teach offensive guards on the opposite side if you, to what people are used to you know what i mean like yeah. he found it more comfortable on that side i didn't even like at the time i just sort of you mirror your coach right and i've always been pretty lazy so i've always been like i've not tried to develop the same attacks on both sides so he taught it on that side and i just practiced it on that side yeah uh, I'm thinking about just personally, you know, on the mat for myself. I have guys I train with whose guard, if I try to go my to my left, I can't pass that guard. But if I go to my right, a lot of times it is a little easier. And, uh, you know, the passes may be a little bit different for me from one, one way or the other. But it, it, playing to the sides uh, definitely has a com- uh, competitive advantage or strategic uh, angle to it. Oh, for sure. For sure. I think, I mean... I think that's why, like, I reckon competition, I would have hit the triangle choke on that side a stack of times. But had I applied it on the other side, yeah, I definitely don't think it would have been as effective. People would be more comfortable, more used to dealing with it. 
And you just kind of, you mentioned that you you worked this guard because you didn't prefer the underhook half guard. I You know, I look at the underhook half guard, and I don't play that much either. I don't play that on purpose. If I'm uh, working underhook half guard, uh, this wasn't my uh, plan A or B. I'm kind of in, in a bad spot. But uh, you have to be tough. I mean, those guys, they kind of get beat on for a few minutes before they pull their sweep off, it seems like. And, and that's just not something that's really that... That fun for me, but uh, you find this this style of a Z guard uh, takes away some of the uh, some of the negative effects of a regular half guard. Yeah, definitely, just getting a different look on a, a different angle. You know what I mean? Like I agree with you as well. Underhook half, that's a grind. And like I think I'm quite lazy, and I'm like, ah, it looks like hard work. I'd rather like trick the guy. Yeah, take me to ADCC this year. What what was your experience like? Uh, maybe starting at the training camp and then getting there. All right, yeah. Um, I just trained in Melbourne for it, and actually, like, uh, jujitsu is my obviously my full time job. And when I say that, I mean I'm te- I'm teaching classes, multiple classes a day. So my week would look like uh, me and my coach Lachlan Giles both qualified. He qualified at seventy seven, and we would train a good one hard one hour to ninety minutes every day. And like that's just super hard training session, and we adapted those sessions to focus on a lot of wrestling and actually i didn't actually use any wrestling at adcc but uh we trained towards the rule set we put in uh, specific scenarios of adcc in terms of like we would train as if it was uh past the uh halfway point where points were in and you couldn't sit guard coming up with sort of strategies for that but yeah just one hard session a day and for me i fitted in a lot of strength and conditioning because although i, I qualified 12 months before the event and i I did the 88-kilo division trials, even though I was about 80 kilos. So what's that? That's about 18, 18, 19 pounds underweight, I think. My math my math could be off. And my coach, Lachlan, did 77. We had a fight in the gym, and he beat me, so he got to do the 77. So I spent a lot of, after qualifying at 88, just stacks of time trying to pack on the pack on the weight because I learned <laughs> my lesson. I, I did the same thing last time. I qualified in Korea. I avoided the 77-kilo division because uh, Lachlan was in it. But I didn't actually put on any weight. So when I showed up at ADCC in Brazil, I was not only was I a purple belt, but I was 80 kilos. And first round, they gave me Homolo Bahal, who was the previous champion. So I was like, after fix, after that experience, I was never going in underweight again. <laughs> he he, he commuted me in like two minutes. I'm surprised I lasted two minutes, actually. <laughs> but yeah, in terms, of the, in terms of the camp, it was just one hard, one hard session a day. And then we went... We arrived on the Thursday pretty late. It was a pretty a pretty long flight from Australia. Australia's very far away from everywhere, sadly. And then so my first day was went better than I could could have possibly predicted. I I drew Leandro Low first round, which was like probably one of the toughest guys yeah. in the division. Yeah, so I was quite nervous. I mean a lot of people back home were saying, Oh, Craig's gonna win, but like even in my mind I was like, Oh, that's a tough first round. I was hoping for someone easier. But <laughs> I tried to forget who Leandro was and just took it to him. My logic was that, like, although he's probably one of the greatest gi grapplers of all time, and he did beat Gordon Ryan, like, I really had to have faith in my uh, in my nogi game and in my leg locks, and just had to have faith that I did have more experience training nogi. I really believe that. I believe like amazing guy, amazing athlete would have done in a, a huge nogi camp. But I've been training for the ADCC rule set for three, four years. That's probably my predominant. Um, training style i would say so like i had faith took it to him i was able to get a heel hook i think i did some good damage to his leg but being leandro he doesn't tap anything but chokes 
So he just let that pop, ripped his leg out. I was able to, the next time I shot a leg lock entry, he, he cleared the knee and I used it to sweep. He was avoiding me getting the sweep points, so turned to turtle, took his back in the turtle and choked him. And then the second round, Marillo Santana, who like, uh, I mean, a very famous guy, probably not as famous as Leandro, but definitely one of the toughest guys in the world. And given the, his low passing style, I knew it was definitely going to be a tough matchup for me, even after having beat Leandro low. Like I knew Marillo incredibly tough, but I came out against him and I felt like, um, I felt like he was a bit worried about the leg locks. I don't, he wouldn't commit weight into me like I've seen him do against a lot of opponents. And he actually, as I shot for a leg lock entry, almost swept himself. And then when I was playing on top, it was before the halfway point. So if you're unfamiliar with that ACC, there's no points at the start. So when he shot up for a single, I was like, oh, I'll shoot, I'll try, I'll try the flying triangle. Shot it off the overhook, landed it. If I didn't land it, I would have been back playing guard where I probably wanted to be. So it was a crazy first day. Day two, not as good. Keenan beat me up. And then I had a, a real close one with Shanji. And I ended up trying to shoot the flying triangle again in the points period. But uh, he turned that into a takedown. Sadly, uh, lightning doesn't strike twice. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was it. Lost the, lost the bronze medal <clears throat> and jumped back in for the open weight. We're at Ford. Uh, I heel hooked Chael Sonnen. And then Gordon Ryan got me with the arm triangles. So it was good. I got to I got to fight pretty much the best guys in the 88 kilo division. So like I mean I didn't get to fight Gordon in the division, but I got to have a match against him in the absolute. Wow. What an, an amazing thing. I remember watching that uh you're attacking the legs of uh, Leandro Lowe, and I'm like, that looks like it's painful. And then from then on it, it really kind of felt like like yeah, it looks like he he probably did a little bit of damage there, uh, and then I don't know how much longer it was, but um, I don't know. It's I don't know. You hate to see a guy get hurt, but you know if you get hurt and then you can't really compete like you would normally, you probably should have just went ahead and uh, said good enough on the leg lock sometimes. But I don't know at that level, guys don't like the type of stuff, and that's, I guess that's why they're at that level. Especially, especially to an unknown gringo, right? <laughs> do, do you think no one he, wants to tap to an Australian? <laughs> do you think he knew who you were? Um, I doubt it. I mean, I don't. I wouldn't imagine. Like the only other success I've really had that got any attention was uh, a couple of leg locks at EBI. But I mean, I doubt Leandro watched EBI. He only found out who he had the night before. Maybe he watched it then. Yeah, but. It, I think um, I watched his match with Gordon. I mean, I tried to study it. Yeah, I tried to work out some things to do, but like I couldn't. I couldn't really see any openings. But um, I was trying to play shin on shin with him and elevate to single leg X and attack the legs there. But uh, I couldn't get the sh- like. He's very good at that penetrating step in between my feet, and uh, obviously amazing knee cut to back step. So I had to play a modified De La Hiva. I knew De La Hiva wouldn't hold him, so strategically I was like, I'll go for the De La Hiva footlock grip to slow him down a bit. But I mean, I it was it was quite a trip uh, facing Leandro because like when I did do a lot of gi, that was probably one of my favorite guys. I used to study his stuff like crazy, his Toriando passes, knee cut passes. He's had some of the best matches I've ever seen in the gi. He's not he's not an amazing like um, finisher, but like he's one of the most exciting guys to play the game. I think watching some of your matches, I'm thinking that that you are an amazing finisher, though. Um, you know, c- coming from the way you play your game. Um, very attack-oriented style, it seems like. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's funny. It's funny. I try and teach all the, anyone I um, teach, especially the lower belts, I'm always like, guys, you got to go for the position and then the submission. But then they watch me compete and I'm just doing all the wrong, doing all the wrong things, I guess, but making it work somehow. Like just really going for subs nonstop. Even to, I mean, a lot of guys say they go for the sub, they lose points. That's definitely, that's definitely me to a T when I have, I have to compete in points tournaments. Dissect that a little bit more for me. So are you, uh, are you trying for stuff from your guard that often gets it passed or, or what's happening that, that, that you're getting kind of hit with, uh, losing some points going for stuff? I guess just a top and bottom, you know what I mean? Like you see the okay. commode trap on top or something, you shoot it, they end up sweeping you off it or like, yeah, again, get past. I think, um, I've been doing this style for so long, like just attacking the submissions from guard that definitely early my jujitsu suffered for it. Like I'd be taking high, high risk moves from the, from the guard and getting passed. But, uh, I just didn't adapt my style and I think my guard retention or failed submissions has just improved a lot. So I think that's what saved me. Spending spending enough time in those bad positions where you miss the sub. Everyone's been there. You know, you shoot the triangle, you get stacked past. You shoot the triangle the wrong time, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I wonder, you know, looking at your game, you like to play half guard on the kind of the, the opposite side, attacking at, at times that don't seem conventional. You think that throws people off as well? For sure, for sure. Um, when I take that overhook on the weak side, it's just like uh, – if we switch sides and I was attacking the overhook, they would see the triangle a mile away. You know what I mean? Something they felt a million times, but attacking on the weak side, they feel safe when they're not. <laughs> so yeah, that saved me. <laughs> but I mean, I couldn't get it. Like I was trying to get Leandro to come, come down into my Z guard, but I just couldn't get him down there. Like he passes very head high. So it was quite a, quite challenging to, uh, to get into those areas. I wanted him to. So how long was between those two matches? Was it, so when I got the, the, the feed, it was like already over. It happened in the middle of the night, 2 o'clock in the morning, and they were already done. So I so it was 10 minutes go by between those, or was it longer or shorter? A, f- a fair while. So they did the um, – the way ADCC run it is they would do every first-round match of every weight division, starting at the heaviest through to the lightest, and then they start again. Heaviest guys, second round through to the lightest. So I, it was quite a while. Actually – uh, coached Lachlan in between my matches so like he had a, like a 15 minute battle with JT Torres where he, he ended up losing by two but it was a real close real close match so I mean I had time to coach that go back warm up it was definitely um definitely allow you a lot of time so he probably observed some, some of your game and that's why he wasn't uh, passing the way you thought he would yeah yeah I mean that's it's funny I had to face those two guys because like I mean, everyone's seen the BJJ scout videos on those guys. Like, I've studied those guys so much. <laughs> well, that's that's uh, definitely an advantage. Um, you're at the level where that happens, where you could you could scout out your opponents and learn about them before you hit the mat with them. But uh, yeah, for sure. that's not though, a common thing actually, for people. Not at all. Actually, it's funny because I study them to steal their game, not to beat their game. That's always <laughs> been the point I've been at, you know what I mean? But now, I, after ADCC, I'm probably the level of the, the amount of high-profile match offers I've been getting. It's like now I have to study them to beat them. It's funny how things shift so quickly. Yeah, that's an interesting shift that uh, I haven't really thought about. Um, you know, 99.9% of us are, are looking at someone's game like yours to try to figure out how to make that work in my game. Well, how does my half guard work backwards? And how, how could I get 
uh, you know, a good overhook on that side. And really, once you get to the same level as somebody, you need to be looking at, well, if they're doing that to me, how do I pass that that guard on the wrong side and, and you know, avoid it anyway or whatever? It's an interesting switch that you make it once you start observing your actual competition. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's going to be a big um, a big adjustment. So uh, when you competed at the lower levels, did you just go in and, and just see how it just – focus on your own game versus really worried about other people because it was harder to scout them out yeah yeah definitely i mean it's a cash 22 with scouting right i mean uh at a lower level you might see the bracket you see your opponent you look him up online he sees really really good at one thing and it's, that happens at the lower levels a lot guys are very um not one dimensional obviously very good in other areas but they're very good at something and you go into the match and you're like oh, i gotta avoid that area and it's actually comes to your detriment so you don't actually implement your game because you're worried about one aspect of their game that's um that was a big a big factor back then but nowadays i guess it doesn't doesn't matter so much because uh the guys or the guys you face a black belt quite often they're so famous you know their game anyway yeah it would you know be like I mean? yeah like somebody looking at you and say okay i have to avoid uh the z guard and so you have somebody who's a very good guard passer uh, decide to pull guard against you and then you know it's like well their guard's not their main thing and so you're passing a guard that's certainly not their best thing and uh it worked yeah, against so them be very, i think you're gonna be very very careful of that so it's like even when i face the famous guys now obviously in the back of my mind i know what they're good at and in a way i i, I want to avoid it but at the same time i want to be confident enough that i can implement my game anyway and it's going to work do you know what i mean like yeah Marillo santana obviously one of the best guard passers in the game but I have to have faith that the Z guard will work. You know what I mean? If I played it any other way, it might be to my detriment. And that happened a lot for me at lower levels. So I'd watch those. I'd look up a guy in the bracket at Purple Belt and be like, oh, i got to avoid this. And maybe it, it meant that I played a game that was different to what I'm used to and I lost. So I tried to start just not really looking up who my opponent is, not even look at the bracket really. You know what I mean? Like try not to care about that and have faith in my own jiu-jitsu. Yeah. But that's definitely a skill. Because as you get as you get up and up in the ranks, you begin to know who people are straight away. So it's like it's something it's something it's like a mental obstacle. I guess the first time I fought Homolo, so terrified, there was no chance I would beat him. You know what I mean? I have to be pure luck. But these days, it's like I think it's a skill, and it definitely takes practice. Some guys straight out of the gates, they start fighting the legends, and they they win straight away. I don't know how they have the confidence to do that. Whereas to me, I had to. Uh, I had to face them in competition, train with them a lot, try and understand that they are human and these guys are possible to beat. Wow, it, it, it's it's really cool to hear you talk about that transition from going uh, from uh, you know really good at jiu-jitsu to you know top of the food chain, competing at the world stage, and uh, and, and and what that's like. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah, just really uh... fascinating, uh, like step to make. Yeah, it is, a, it is a crazy step. I mean, you, like, if you're dedicated to competition, you always think one day you're going to be on that level. Like, you think it, believe it, you try and believe it, you know what I mean? But you don't actually know if you ever will make it to that level. And then when it happens, it is, yeah, a bizarre experience, bizarre shift in everything, in every aspect. Yeah, I I think that's a, like you're saying, I've got to throw my, my Z guard at him and see, you know, if it works or if it's if it's going to work against that person. I think that's a, something that we could all do 
at any level, if you've got a good butterfly guard or, you know, a good, you know, knee cut pass, whatever, if you can get to your game and it works, great. And if it doesn't work, well, then that that person is going to beat that part of your game. And as long as you're able to try, if that's your strongest part of your game, well, you did, you fought a smart match and you did your best, but they were just better than you that day. Um, And so I think that kind of having the idea of, once I get to my my part of my game, I'm going to hit him with everything I've got. And if it's you know if if they're that much better than me and I got nothing on them, well then it's not my match today. Uh, lesson learned. But uh, it, just just to walk in there with the confidence of my game against their game. Let's see which one uh, works out better. And uh, and I know my game is good. Yeah, hundred hundred percent. So I mean, I think it's the same way you got to you got to approach training. I see a lot of guys in the lower levels, like especially blue belts, they start to get good at one thing or effective at one thing. And they're happy. They're like content with that level of success that obviously no one enjoys being tapped. So they just stick to what they're good at constantly, constantly trying to smash the white belts. You know what I mean? But it takes a certain, a certain type of person to um, <clears throat> get good at something and then maybe try something new, get tapped by guys, fail at things that are fail against guys that they would usually beat if they play their A game. Do you know what I mean? And those are the guys that take it to another another level. And it, it doing the same in competition, I think, applies as well. You know what I mean? If you go if you're confident in your butterfly guard and you face someone that you know is a really good guard passer, there's no point hiding from it. Do you know what I mean? It's time to it's time to really test it out. Yeah. Because every, everyone everyone loses, right? I mean, apart from half a is probably the guy that's <laughs> lost the least. <laughs> but he's not human. We don't count him. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think I think the easy example for me that I've seen many many times is somebody who comes in as a really good wrestler. Uh, they get their guard passing down, and, and they end up having a pretty good top game. Uh, end up becoming a blue belt, and somewhere along that blue belt level, they decide that they're going to work on their guard. And of course, their guard isn't any good. You know, they get passed, they get in trouble, they get their back taken, they get smashed more. But if they could keep working on that guard and not worry about getting beat by somebody who they could just take down and pass easy. Uh, that's how they're going to develop their jiu-jitsu in the long run. Yeah, 100%. And that's actually, uh, my coach, Lachlan Giles, told me that, the, I think, the most. I see him in the gym even today. And, like, uh, he played his A game in the gym, probably wouldn't get tapped by anyone. But uh, if I see him get tapped by anyone, for the rest of the role, for the rest of the round, he doesn't avoid it. He puts himself straight back there. So say the guy's got a good close guard, he goes into it, gets tapped. It'd be easy to just step aside and try use your A game to beat that guy down, sort of walk away with that moral victory. But he goes straight back in there, tries to figure out what the guy did, even if it means he gets submitted a, a couple more times. So I think that's uh, that's one of the most important things in the game. That's obviously one of the most painful things to your ego. Yeah, and and that's why uh, that that ego could could be such a big uh, obstacle with getting success on the mat. Definitely. What was the transition from training a couple times a week pretty casually, but wanting to be good, to uh, really picking things up and taking this as a serious activity? Well, the transition was uh, just that trip to America, really. Like uh, like the gym I was training in, I was young, I was sort of athletic, so a couple a couple times a week I could still be at the, the top end of the gym. So I could go into the gym and beat up those guys. And a lot of guys that have never traveled might be at a, a lower-level school, but but they believe their school's like one of the best in the world. So it's like I trained there. The guys would always say how high level the gym was. I'd never traveled, trained anywhere else, like in that gym. 
cross training wasn't allowed in the city, so I never really got exposed to anything else. So I sort of was young, had this idea that I was at the higher higher level of a gym that was a high level gym, but I would be training twice a week. And then when I went to the states and got a uh, painfully reminded how that wasn't true, I came back and was just like, I gotta dedicate myself to this. Like I was doing a psychology degree at the time so I, like i completed the degree but didn't go on to a placement to become a practicing psychologist but i was like i just so i wanted to get good at jiu-jitsu so i just dropped that off took a part-time job and just trained every day like even when there weren't classes on me and um me and my friend lachlan Warren, we would just be in the gym watching instructionals practicing moves at the time it was sort of like the beer and bolo would just come well, it had been out for a couple of years. I hadn't really hit Australia yet. So, like, well, I went over there, got my back taken with that a bunch. So, I just came home and just maybe even six to nine months just drilling beer and bolos every day, trying to figure it out, strategize to come back the next year. So, that was really the shift. It was sort of, um, I guess you, you say don't have ego, but I guess it was ego driven. It was like, oh, my ass kicked. I wanted to go back and do well. Yeah. I, I think the, so the ego could be a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. If it's, if it's motivating to to train harder and get better, uh, that's definitely a good thing. If it's if you went over there and you got your butt kicked, and you didn't want to have that experience on your ego again, there's an easy way to not have that, and it's just to avoid it. Yeah, very, very, very true. So that was uh, kind of a little summary of your ADCC experience. Um, so, what are your plans, maybe for next year or the the times ahead, as far as grappling jiu-jitsu mma what do you what do you have that you're looking at um it's still be jiu-jitsu focused okay. but right now i've been um i've been teaching a lot like here in melbourne like i mean i say it's a lot it's a lot for a professional competitor i guess but i've been teaching every morning at 6 30 a couple lunch times a week and uh, a couple nights at um one of our other gyms in collingwood so like it's and teaching privates and stuff make trying to make enough money to to support the lifestyle, obviously not getting not getting rich, but um, <clears throat> and trying to balance out the training. So, like I know, if you're not competing, teaching is a dream job. But when you're competing and you're trying to train professionally, it's just like any other job. It does get in the way of your preparation. So, like with the with the ADCC, and I, I got a little bit of fame, I guess, in the jiu-jitsu world because of that. It's opened the doors for like better sponsorships, uh, seminars. I mean, even putting the price up for private. So. My real goal is to cut back the formal teaching and spend more time as dedicating myself as a proper athlete. You know what I mean? Like it could be easy to like, especially in Australia, just to build it to start a gym and start teaching full time and try and make money. Even off like obviously I didn't win ADCC, but build off the names of the people I beat. But uh, rather than that, I'd rather keep this lifestyle going and sort of focus on um, using what I've accomplished to give myself a better preparation for next time. So that's the focus. And using ADCC, obviously, I've had the plans are some super fights. I can't talk about who the opponent is, but I've been talking to Polaris for a big matchup next year. In terms of this year, I've got the EBI Openweight Tournament, and I'll jump back into the IBJJF for the Nogi Wells. Sadly, no no heel hooks there. <laughs> so... Uh... All different rule sets. It's you know, grappling. You're trying to submit each other, obviously, but uh, learning and really finding the the benefits of the rules. How big is that? Oh, it's huge. <clears throat> it's huge. I mean, I'm not a believer in that old thing where it's like, uh, like you train in the gi, the gi's going to make you better at no gi. I think it did 
I think, I don't know if it did, but back in the day, I think obviously the guys, the gi guys would be the no gi guys because more people did gi. And there's a bigger, when there's a bigger uh, amount of people doing gi, obviously there's going to be better athletes. And when there were so few dudes doing no gi only, um, <clears throat> the gi athletes could easily transition to the ADCC rule set and win. But I think the sport's really evolving. And I've got to give credit to, I mean, Eddie and Danaher's guys, they've blown up the submission only scene and the no gi only scene. And guys really training for the ADCC rule set. So, like, um, I really think that for your camp, you need to only train what's coming up next. So, like, if you're training for ADCC, don't even put the gear on. I think it's like a, I think it's a waste of your time, right? I think maybe, maybe you could put it on once a week. I think if you're training for EBI, there's no point practicing wrestling. There's no point showing up to wrestling class. Your energy could be better suited towards 100% focus on EBI. So that's how I really do it. Like whatever's next. Well, say I might have a couple tournaments lined up. So say like uh, I've got EBI absolutes. Um, I might be doing an ACB tournament in Russia and I will have the Noki world to the end of the year. So like whatever's next is the exact rules that I prepare for and I think about enrolling. That's the way I structure it. Yeah, it, it seems like there is a transition where uh, you basically described it as the vast majority of submission grapplers, jiu-jitsu athletes, are training with the gi on. So, sure, when when you get them doing uh, competitions without the gi, the really good guys are also wearing the gi, so they're also doing great uh, without the gi. But people who just focus on that no gi uh, uh, over time, that that talent pool is also growing, and you're getting some really talented athletes to, that uh, train for the specific sport that they're actually doing. Definitely. In te- like in 10 years, I don't think, like, I mean, all credit to what, uh, obviously, Cabrinha did something amazing this year. Did the yeah. He won all the gi tournaments and then he won ADCC. And on top of that, he's 38. But do I think in 10 to 20 years, are the gi guys going to be winning the ADCC? I don't, I don't think so anymore. I think there's enough no gi stuff going on that there's a bunch of dudes that are going to be dedicated to no gi. I mean, once upon a time, the only guys doing the ADCC that were mostly no-gi only guys were MMA fighters. So, of course, you put an MMA fighter in a no-gi tournament against gi grapplers, the gi guys are going to win. But I think now the sport, I mean, I mean, think about how hard it would be to be amazing, to have a to world-class black belt level spider guard and world-class level heel hooks and wrestling. Like, it's <laughs> like there's too much going on these days. Yeah, and the- I think in the future that will definitely, the gap's, the gap's broadening. Like a lot of guys, uh, Gordon Ryan, amazing. But there'll be a lot of geek guys that still thought coming into the this 88-kilo tournament that he was not going to win. Yeah. And and you mentioned like kind of the, the spider guard versus, uh, I don't know what you said, butterfly maybe. Just the two guards that, uh, you know, you can't, you're not really doing a no-key spider guard uh, without grabbing yeah. a lot of the hair on their arms. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, you spend hours and years working on a guard that you have to throw away when you transition to the other sport. It's, uh, oh, yeah, 100%. It makes it tough. It would be unrealistic. Un- it would be unrealistic to expect you to do well in both. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. As the, as the competition grows and, it, and the technique uh, goes up and the, and the skill level De- goes up. Definitely. And that's why, uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing year. Um, with Cobrinha and his performance, and oh, not, insane, not a surprise, right? but but just as as the years go by, that might not happen again. 
Yeah, he is a, I mean, everything about that guy is amazing. What did he, he start at Jiu-Jitsu at 24? Insane, right? Like he started <laughs> at 24 and what he's been able to accomplish in both gi and no gi. Is that, that's where you went when you went to the US? You went to his school? Yeah. On that trip? Actually, it was a, I, I, I went to Cabrini's the first trip I went, but I, I never went back. I think when I was younger, I didn't appreciate LA as much. I was just disappointed it wasn't like it was in the movies. <laughs> so I tried to avoid it. I mean, it, the weather's amazing, but uh, I would travel around. Like I think <clears throat> 2014, I went to the US, tried to do uh, six tournaments in six weeks. And while I was traveling around, trained as many cool places as possible. So I think I would. I went and trained with Cyborg, went and trained with Marcelo Garcia, went and trained with Robert Drysdale. So for me, really, I tried to train with every top-level guy around the world and sort of get a loose understanding of what what they do that's similar, what one team does that I think is really good versus what they do that I don't think is valuable. So sort of get a perspective on all these guys. But I think the most important part was just realizing that, like, although you idolize them, I guess on YouTube more so than the TV for jiu-jitsu guys, you idolize them as, like, and they are legends, but, again, you spend some time on that is that is regular dudes regular humans yeah it's always interesting to kind of see different uh, training methods you you said correct me if i'm wrong for this uh adcc you were training really hard about an hour every day uh, is that about right yep. what were you yeah. doing were you were you rolling or were you getting in certain positions and working those and and resetting when you when that position changed or what were you doing for that hour just yeah exactly like you said just like i would i would spend maybe um I would probably only roll three, four rounds a day, but the the vast majority of training would just be positional sparring. We'd get like for we have like a pro class at about ten thirty every day at our gym in St Kilda, so it'd be like we'd show up. I mean, you warm yourself up, and then straight away positional stuff. Especially with ADCC, I think ADCC overwhelmingly guys with really good wrestling wins. I mean, someone like Harper Mendez when he won it, he came along. Really is a, like obviously done wrestling, but a pure jiu-jitsu guy. He was so good at jiu-jitsu, he just submitted just about everyone. And then he beat Cabrinho in the final. I think that's, uh, it's very hard to do. I think a lot of guys need to really strategically use the wrestling. So like train lots of wrestling for it. Um, luckily we've got some, we've stolen some good Russian, Russian wrestlers. Cause sadly in Australia, no one knows how to wrestle. So we have to bring people over for it. So those guys definitely helped us out. And then, um, yeah, like if you if you want to understand how important wrestling is for uh, ADCC, I think just look at JT Torres, his run to his seventy-seven kilo title. Wrestling was the um, the factor that that uh, allowed him to win that. Yeah, you mentioned that the you guys don't wrestle there much. Do you guys have like school programs with wrestling or? Uh, oh, nothing. 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 If you ask someone in Australia what wrestling was, they think you were talking about the Undertaker. <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what it what are the 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 youth combat sports that people do there? Nothing really. You know what? Um, Muay Thai is pretty popular because we're so close to Thailand. Yeah. So a lot of a lot we've obviously a lot of Thai people have come over to teach Muay Thai here, but more or less, <clears throat> very small amount of boxing, very small amount of wrestling. Everyone's here crazy about the bull sports, but they're crazy about rugby and Australian rules football. So it's really combat sports get no attention. There's barely any judo here. I think we've had some, a couple of successful judo athletes, but again, nothing like uh, nothing like even America. So we yeah. don't have, yeah, <laughs> not much going on. There's definitely no combat sports in schools either. Nothing that would even resemble wrestling. Huh. I think that, you know, getting people to do that, 
young is has a huge ripple effect. If you wrestled when you were a kid and you you may not have enjoyed it, but you, you look back yeah, you with fondness. <laughs> you make your kid wrestle too. You know this is what you, or football or any sport. You, like a lot of, a lot of adults don't do sports. They work, and 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 so it's hard to find a sport as an adult sometimes. And that's the great thing about jiu-jitsu is that a lot of people do find it as an adult. But if you're able to do this as a kid, by the time you grow up and have kids yourself, you want them to do the same thing you did a lot of times, I think. And not having that in a school system or having that um, be, be there, uh, yeah, it does have that ripple effect or not ripple effect if it's not even there. And, uh, yeah, it's that's too bad. That's why I think that you know the growth of – uh, martial arts, jujitsu there is going to be really uh, continue to to be big. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I wish we had wrestling in in school, but like, it's in the city I'm from. I don't even think we'd have even a remotely high level wrestler living there. There might be someone. I think there's one or two wrestling clubs in the whole in the whole city, and the city's one and a half million people. So it's just it never it never took off here. But I think uh, I think wrestling like uh it's probably one of the hardest sports in the world it's one of the most grueling things i've ever done like for anyone that's done jujitsu and thinks that's hard you should try a wrestling class the warm-ups alone will scare you yeah wrestling is a is a different experience yeah you mentioned that you're kind of a, a, a lazy grappler i'm a lazy guy myself but there's really not a lot of lazy wrestlers you have you it's going <laughs> you've got to push the pace all the time in wrestling oh 100 percent hundred percent you can't take a step backwards really yeah and uh <laughs> yeah they're they're different but they're i mean they're both those sim- they're similar you mentioned also that you did quite a bit of wrestling training for adcc so what is what what does that even mean are are you is that working on takedowns wrestling or were you actually working for uh top control and not letting them get back up or uh what do you mean by we by doing wrestling training yeah, well, I guess I mean just um just takedowns, battling for takedowns. Uh, but um, the coaches we had are quite um, I'd say definitely wrestling specific coaches. Like uh, one of the coaches has trained jujitsu a long time, but there are definitely moves you have to pick and choose. You know what I mean? There's yeah. some moves in wrestling where I'd be like, I'm not gonna, I couldn't do that on the jujitsu mats. So that was that's that's been the battle. He he does train uh, jujitsu. He's pretty good at jujitsu, but like obviously not to the same level as um me and my coach. So we it's sort of what was cool is it was sort of like he would be trying to show us moves that he thinks works in jiu-jitsu and we're trying to work back and forth. But even just learning wrestling, there's some things that those guys do in terms of grips and controlling the body that um, I'd never even been taught in jiu-jitsu, but they translate their ways to control the ankle so guys can't rotate. I found it very interesting. So I guess like um, although it was grueling and horrible to train, I definitely found it very interesting watching, trying to learn things. I find myself on YouTube watching a lot of college wrestling matches before then. Before the ADCC, I've just I've just been resting now. Though <laughs> I've been lazy since the ADCC. Do you think you could you you pick up stuff very well by watching it, even on YouTube? Yeah, I think if you watch it properly, right? I mean, anyone can sit there and watch a a highlight reel. Like I guess, like I mean, you watch any of Stuart Cooper's ADCC highlight reels, you're going to see some amazing stuff, but you're probably not going to learn anything. What's I think where you learn is. Like you're watching a match where not much happens, but you're trying to identify any sort of grip battles they have. And then when there's a transition, like go back, freeze frame, freeze frame, freeze frame, trying to see, trying to see the progression. That's really how I like to learn things. Because like to me, 
I mean, you go on Instagram, you see some, you see some moves, and you're like, "There's no way that would work." So it's like, or you see some instructionals on YouTube. Anyone can put anything on YouTube. It's the uh, the old thing, like uh, you'd be like, oh, "I just don't think that move would work." But I love trying to pick up techniques that have been done in high level competition. That's where I really like to find find some interesting stuff. Because I mean, directly in front of you, like say someone gets someone sweeps, let's say Leandro Lowe, they sweep Leandro Lowe. We're like, 100%. I know that's a valid move. I know that's <laughs> worth spending some time on. Yeah. So I think there's there's something that that YouTube has a little bit of a hard time communicating. Sometimes is you look at the technique and you and you you break it down frame by frame, each little thing that happens. But what they're not seeing is you're doing positional sparring for an hour a day hard against somebody in that same position and they think that okay if i learn the technique i'll have it but no you have to to work the technique or you know, i don't know what these wrestlers are doing you know you watch them do some really cool technique and you try to figure it out but i think it would also be very beneficial to see what they're doing at training and see how they're developing that technique yeah we need to spy yeah that'd be you good. About, that, um, <laughs> about about the positional training i, I started training with kit, kit dale probably he started coming back on the scene in Australia. He had a break for a while, but about a year and a half ago. And I remember he told me he copped a lot of heat for his no drilling thing, but like he taught me something very valuable with that. It's like um, you drill the technique until you can do the movement. You've acquired the movement. So you don't need to drill it anymore. All you need to get is timing. And timing can only come from positional sparring or just forcing the position during a roll. So I think like he makes a valid point there. Whereas if you did a, um, if you could do it, you could uh, do a technique perfectly. But your timing was wrong, the technique wouldn't work. If you were pretty average at a technique, but your timing was perfect, it's still going to be effective. So that's what's really helped me sort of articulate how the, the importance of positional sparring. Yeah, and just the amount of with the, with the with the kind of the the dumb man drilling is you know okay, I get in your guard and you armbar me ninety times, and and we all celebrate the great training. Uh, with the idea of positional sparring is you maybe you start with an angle to the arm bar and you, you you work to finish it from there and i work to defend it from there and and that is that is very effective compared to the idea that we just roll and we hope to get uh, or you're hoping to get that angle to work that arm bar it may never even happen so uh, like putting yourself there to start with is a great way to develop i think that timing and to get those things and it's, I always find it fascinating to, to learn from people like you who aren't at like the biggest gyms in the world, training with with ninety other black belts that have all you know won these major tournaments. You're having uh, I, what the thing I hear over and over again is positional sparring. We we work on uh, certain positions. We 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 work on things we're going to be in, and we develop our game from there. And and that's just I think that that should be something that people should should really pick up on even more than the technique you're using because you could all the techniques most of them are really good it's just developing them in a way that is, is beneficial to you yeah yeah I, I couldn't agree more and i think the amount of positional sparring you do is probably dependent upon what belt you are so say like um you're a brand new beginner and you didn't do any positional sparring but you wanted to work a technique like well good work a technique during a role like well good luck with that <laughs> you're struggling you're struggling to even uh survive let alone find a particular area to work on but then um this is where it gets confusing because you might see the black belts in the gym do less positional sparring, but that's because when they're rolling with the average guy in the gym, they can force positions easy. So you'll see like quite a lot of high-level guys, if they're working a guard pass, they might pass your guard and let you get your guard back. 
So that's their positional sparring. They can find it in any sort of in any sort of role against a, an easier opponent. So I think that's where a lot of white belts get confused. They might be like, well, why are you telling me to drill? You are not drilling a lot. Why are you telling me to positional spar? You're not positional sparring a lot. You know what I mean? It's because I'm, I'm still doing it. I'm just not doing it in the same way. I'm not forcing it in the same way. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, way to look at that. But yeah, that rings true over and over again. Uh, you definitely could use uh, the the rolling time as training time, not not a competition with your teammates. And the the better you are versus that opponent versus your training partner, the more you can put yourself in the places you want to be. Uh, yeah, that's that's all. That's probably ninety eight percent of my rolling. Unless I'm rolling with Kid Dale or Lachlan Giles, then I'm just trying to survive. <laughs> Everyone else, I'm practicing techniques. Even if I get caught, I mean, if I get caught, I still fight. I don't want to get tapped, but it happens, right? Like we were talking about earlier. Yeah, and 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 the same as you know, we're talking at probably all most of the time uh, about offense and getting those to work. Same thing with defense. If if the first time you're trying to figure out how to get out of a triangle choke is in a competition, you're not going to have much luck. You need to do that in training. <laughs> you need to spend those exactly. hours in in Kit Dale's triangle, and and then you know like. <laughs> That, that helps you when it actually matters. What was that? <laughs> I said that guy doesn't have a triangle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, it, it is fun to just think offense all the time. But but learning your escapes and learning how to get out of bad spots—that's important too. Yeah, a hundred percent. I always try and tell my my guys this. Anyone that's doing my classes, I'm like, um, in the context of learning and training. If say you had a ten minute round with a guy, and for nine and a half minutes you scored a bunch of points. And in the last 30 seconds, he submitted you. I'm like, sure, he walks out happy that he got you. But you learned a whole lot more. You know what I mean? That, that role, even though you, I guess, technically lost it, you won for nine and a half minutes. It's like when Chael Sonnen fought Anderson Silva, right? What did he say? He's like, Anderson beat me for five seconds, but I beat him for four and a half rounds. Yeah. I think, I think it's the same. And if you redefine um, what success means in the gym, you're going to find a lot more success in the competition, Matt. So, like, if you show up to training every day to try and get the submissions and not get submitted, you're going to be capped. You're only going to reach a certain level. But if you spend every training session um, learning in that in that same way and trying to forget every time you get tapped, unless there's something to learn about the defense, then, yeah, you're going to exponential growth. Yeah. Man, I'm learning a lot from you today, Craig. Um, I got a question here from uh, one of the listeners, Nathan. He he wants to know your short time on a match. You've got you know less than a minute, and you need to get a submission. Uh, what are you looking for? What, what what is going on in your head to to get to that? In terms of like a competition, yeah. I think you've just got to recklessly, as bad as it sounds, implement whatever you need to do. Do you know what I mean? Like. It, this is the thing. You don't want to – it's the same as in training. You don't want to not get submitted on the competition mat if you're losing. And I, I think it's the same. So, like, say you're a minute down, you're both standing. you got to shoot. you got to grab him. you got to pull guard. you got to go for anything, even if that means it's uh, reckless and loose and the guy passes and armbars you. Well, at least you know. Do you know what I mean? At least there's a definitive result. Like, in training, I see a lot of times the guys are in a bad position, and they – they look at the time and there's 30 seconds left. And I'm looking at them like, you are loose. You got to get out of there. But in their mind, they're like, I don't want to get submitted. And that's that you got to take that same approach to the competition mats. So, like, you just got to go for it. You got to not even worry about getting submitted because a submission loss is the same as a points lost. You lost. You can't say, you can't walk away and be like, well, you didn't submit me. You know what I mean? If you have that in your head at all, it's too late. Yeah, you didn't get to the next round. Yeah, exactly. And I say this to guys as well. I'm like, 
I hate it when guys come to me and they're like, oh, I lost in the first round. I'm like, it doesn't matter if you lost in the first round or you lost in the final, you lost. It might not, it might, the first round doesn't look as good on Instagram, but <laughs> a loss is a loss. Yeah. I, maybe one thing to do, we're talking a lot about training methods. If you are that guy, you look at the clock and, and, and you're in a bad spot and there's 45 seconds, tell yourself, can I submit this person in these last 45 seconds? And like, like the odds are probably not, you know, but are you going to try? And it's just training, you know, it's that same, you know, positional Spartan. You're going to try to go from a bad spot to a great spot to finishing in less than a minute, train that way. And if you need it, it'll be more likely to be there. And that confidence will be there too, probably. Yeah. You're going to compete the way you train. You're not going to, you know, your performance isn't going to elevate on competition day. You're going to do exactly what you do in the gym. So that's another thing to remember. A lot of guys think like uh, something magic's going to happen. You know what I mean? On competition day, your performance doesn't elevate. It falls to your level of training. So I think what you, the habits you make in the gym, you do on competition day. So I see a lot of guys, when they get past, if they're tired or something, they'll let the guy pass and they won't try and fight. You know, you got to hold the position for three seconds or maybe they're getting swept and they just sort of lazily accept the sweep. So like you can't expect to do that in the gym and then react appropriately on the competition mats in a high pressure scenario you're probably going to be more likely to do what you're doing in the gym because that's instinct instincts taken over so i think um that's very important as well with that so when you when uh, you were training for adcc uh, you had a clock going were you mindful of when it was uh changing from points to no or no points to points and, and that sort of thing as well and were you keeping track of who was up on points the whole time yeah, definitely. Especially, I mean, when we, I mean, it's harder for the lower level guys. They're, I don't think they're watching the clock as much. But like, when I'm, whenever I was training with Lachlan for the thing, we'd be very mindful. We'd have the timer set, so like we'd have it'd be an eight minute, eight or ten minute round, and the timer would beep at the midpoint, so we'd both know it was points period. We'd both know if we're standing. Now we can't pull guard, and again, we'd adapt the rules because in ADCC to score, you have to pin the shoulders, right? So like, if I get a, if Lockie shoots a double leg on me and I turtle, he's got nothing. And if I'm in total for three seconds, then roll back to guard, he's got nothing. It's got to be a smooth transition to score points. So we've been rolling like that for the last year. We had the, um, I guess, the blessing of having the very first ADCC trials, which was 12 months before the event. So we had probably had one of the longest camps for the event. But yeah, 100% we were training exactly according to the rules. As best we could. ADCC, sometimes they mix it up. On yeah. The, they sometimes just mix it up, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's hard to prepare for, but this year was pretty straightforward. Yeah, that that's interesting. The it's always disappointing to see somebody who you're rooting for, and and they go out there and you know they're maybe they pull guard and 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 they they can't get the submission of the sweep, and maybe even the guard gets passed, whatever. And yeah. the points come on, and then they end up pulling guard again. It's like that was a, yeah, a bad doing? decision, <laughs> like. Like <laughs> I did that at the trials. I did that at the trials, but it worked out for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. But you know, like I think if you train with the rules in mind, you're less likely to make those like strategic uh, errors to give your opponent that chance. Yep, a hundred percent. You're gonna you're gonna perform on competition day exactly how you train. So when you're lazy in training, you're giving up things in the comp, and that's that's where it's hard. It's easier to to get tired to get tired and forget things in the gym. Craig, I want to be respectful of your time. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but you mentioned that you trained uh, one or two times uh, a week for quite a while. We got a lot of grapplers out there who 
are busy people. They're working. They're going to school. They have families. That and they do train one or two times a week. Uh, what advice do you have for them to get the most out of their training? Just a, just have a narrow focus. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I mean, most jujitsu schools are teaching a new move every day, and I mean I'm guilty of that as well because that's uh, from a business perspective that's what appeals to the larger amount of people. But I mean. If I teach you across knee pass, you're not going to be able to do it. You're not going to drill it for five minutes to be able to do it tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? You're going to have to narrow down your focus. If you're training one or two times a week, to acquire a technique might take up to six months. So I would narrow things down and be like, all right, if I'm on top, I'm doing this pass. If I'm on bottom, I'm using this guard. And that's the way I think you'd train. And as well, the less time you have to train, the more time you should focus on a pass or sweep drill or a first points drill. Because to me, if you look at a high-level match, say, for example, you look at an average black belt match, if the guy gets his guard passed, he's lost. That's a, he's, a match is 100% over. Either the guy maintains the dominant position or the guy gets his guard back. If he gets his guard back, the guy on top is going to be pretty tentative. It's very hard to submit someone that's tentative. So if you think about it in that context, if 90% of the battle is those first points, then you should spend 90% of the training time in those positions. So although it's fun, you won't get as many submissions and stuff, it's fun to go just crazy trying to submit each other, doing crazy things like a baseball bat choke, giving up position. You should be doing overwhelmingly pass or sweep. And again, in a high-level match, if you sweep someone, it's a pretty good chance that you're going to win if you play it safe and control the guy. Because now it's up to the guy to make the next move, and in that, you might pass or submit them in some way. But if you think about jiu-jitsu like that, if you think about what the real battle is, it's not as fun, but that's the best way to spend your time training. Craig, uh, a little bit deeper into this. If I'm training once or twice a week, and every time I show up, I learn something completely different, uh, how do I how do I still benefit from that knowledge that I'm trying to pick up and and try to develop my own game at the same time? I mean, if it's com- if if um, if it's completely different to what you're doing, you could you could write it down, try and save that memory for later. If you write something down, you're more likely to retain it. You could film yourself doing the technique and then put it on a database, put it under a folder. Maybe it's like, uh, I don't do this because I train I train every day. <laughs> I'm always working on things. But I would say like that would be a good way to do it. Because maybe you say like you obviously you drill the technique in class, you can positional spire it and whatnot. But when it's time for your training time, you focus on what you, you're practicing. If you, try, if you keep moving around to the next move, you're going to have trouble. And I would also say, in training, one of the best things you can tell white belts is don't try and submit each other. Just battle for position, battle for position. If I tell one white belt to just think about positions and slow it down and try and hold positions, and against the guy that's going wild for subs, the positional guy always wins. So I think those are definitely that's definitely important in terms of that. So like if, if the guy teaches a technique, it doesn't mean you now are working on that technique. You can just put that aside. You can either disregard it completely. Maybe it's something crazy. I would just disregard it. Yeah, I think that's a situation a lot of people are in is just, you know, one week it's rear naked choke, the next week it's armbar from guard, the week after that it's a takedown, and it's a little bit difficult sometimes. And most of that information is worth knowing. It's just you can't learn it all and be proficient at it showing up once or twice a week. Remind yourself that there's a different spectrum to to how much uh, you are good at jiu-jitsu. There's like, if you could put it from zero to 10, zero would be, you don't even know the move exists. And 10 would be like a world-class, you know, uh, technique that you have. And five is maybe you're, you're proficient at your own level. And, uh, and there's value to, to gaining that one or two of the awareness of the technique. Uh, 
and and that way you could kind of see it coming before it hits you <laughs> totally on the blind side you know like and, and yeah write it down or do a little video and, and help you remember it a little bit uh there's a lot of value to knowing things even if you're not really good at them just so you're aware definitely definitely case in point a baseball bat choke that was something you definitely i would recommend you know but i wouldn't recommend you go for it unless it's the hail mary or unless you're on top <laughs> Helps if they have a gi on too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why I took the gi off those damn baseball bat shows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fun. Hey, uh, Craig, do you have any sponsors? Is anybody helping you? I know you got a lot of uh, big plans coming up as far as competitions and and, and things coming up. Is you got anybody uh, supporting you out there? Yes, we got a gi a gi brand. It's actually Australian conditioning brand in Australia as well. It's called um. MA1 Apparel, so you guys can find that online. Um, we've got I've got a distributor for jiu-jitsu and MMA gear in Australia called Firelife. I believe they're they're in Asia now as well. So like on that website, you'll find a bunch of gear. You also find MA1 stuff. And I, a tape company sponsors me, Sar- Saru Tape Company. So that's available in Australia as well for everyone listening down under. All right, and and where could people find your training? Where? Uh, Absolute MMA St. Kilda. I, actually, on the road for the next couple months, I'll be in the States. I'll be um, – where am I going? I'm going to a bunch of different places. But um, obviously, my coach, Lachlan Giles, will be here. Kit Dale will be around the place. So if you're unlucky, you might have to roll with him. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you're traveling, and that's that's really cool. So really, you could be at a gym anywhere near anybody. Uh, you got to kind of keep up with that. Where could somebody keep up with you on social media to see where you're at? The best would be Instagram. I'll pretty much put everything on Instagram, so you guys will find me at Craig uh, at Craig Jones BJJ. But um, I'll put up. I'll usually have a good amount of information about where I'll be next and stuff. So you might be able to, if I'm nearby, I'll definitely post that I'm doing a seminar somewhere, or even if I'm just training at a gym. All right. Well, we'll put links to that and uh, recommend you go follow craig on uh instagram and if he's near you go train with the guy <laughs> sounds like a lot of fun and a lot of knowledge that you're willing to share with with the world as you travel uh thank you man thanks for having me that's some good questions yeah i you know and i and i enjoy uh, you know you and uh kit dale did you just do you know, we talk about like a brotherhood or a family and the difference between like just a casual friend and 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 people that you you end up training with and you you develop that brotherhood style relationship with is that you could tease each other. You know, I, I don't tease casual friends, but uh, <laughs> training with people like that bond is strong, and you end up having uh, a little bit more fun, and you could be a little more honry. I think sometimes. Definitely, some are, some are brothers, and some are unfortunately like step brothers, like Kid Dale. <laughs> you don't have a choice, but you're stuck with them. Uh, Craig, you know, I've learned a lot from you today just talking to you. Uh, you've got a couple of instructional things out there. Uh, uh, what do you have? So uh, me and Kidell made a DVD on the Z-Guard. So we, it was like uh, we flipped it around a bit. It was like I was showing Z-Guard attacks, and he was showing some uh, Z-Guard passing and some general passing in general. But you're going to have to put up with, obviously, Kidell speaking for half that DVD. So I think we should do a recut, maybe cut that out. <laughs> but in the... In the future, I'm working on a, uh, a leg lock DVD, so that should come out, I think, maybe late this year, early next year. So that's pretty exciting. And uh, is Kit Dale going to be in the leg lock DVD? No, no. So that'll be a, a much easier <laughs> to watch, much more entertaining watch. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, well, thanks for hopping on the show with me, and uh, I look forward to, to following you on social media. No worries. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Craig Jones for taking the time to come out on the show. 
And, you know, one thing that really stuck to me is when he talked about how he's uh, he really likes positional sparring. And it seems like uh, a lot of the people we have interviewed, you know, especially the higher level people, it seems like they're all really like positional sparring. And, uh, you know, I know I've said numerous times, I think that's a thing I don't do enough. Uh, I've been trying to do it on uh, this one night I trained Wednesday night. I've been trying to do it with with this one training partner of mine and just do nothing but positional sparring. And uh, I'm trying to do more and more of it because it just seems like everybody who, you know, is very, very talented, you know, really talks highly about positional sparring. So I'm going to copy them and uh, try to become the best I can be. Yep. Good advice from Craig. I really appreciate appreciate him getting on here with us and, and sharing what he's doing. I really feel like he's a great resource for everybody to learn from. If you get a chance to train with him, do that. <laughs> that would be really cool. You know, Byron, one thing that I've always said you you lack is kind of the mental area. That's true. Didn't you say I've said that? <laughs> you tell me that every time before we start the show. I think you're going to try to knock me down a peg. Yeah, well, I'm actually not trying to knock you down. I'm trying to give you hints, but your mental capacity is so weak that you haven't figured it out. Um, but <laughs> what I've done this week is I found a, an article. Well, actually, Byron found it. I don't know how he found it with his weakened mental state. But uh, uh, an the, article. The from, listeners send these in a lot of times, Gary. Okay. BJBrick yep. at gmail.com. Uh, sportspsych.org. Uh, we have an article, The Nine Mental Skills of Successful Athletes. And this is by Jack J. Lessig. Dr. Jack J. Lessig. I'm sorry there. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, mental skills are very important for athletes. You know, we talk about, you know, the, the physical skills, the, the speed, uh, which Byron doesn't have, the strength, which Byron's lacking. <laughs> Um, you know that stuff, and and then, but now we're talking about the mental skills, which Byron is also lacking, and uh, you know, so we we definitely have to have the the you know the speed and the strength and the stamina, but the mental skills play a big part in there too, and I think sometimes people forget about uh, you know the mental skills. Yeah, a thing in here that's really cool. There are nine specific mental skills that contribute to success in sports. They are all learned and can be improved on with instruction and practice. These aren't things that you're naturally born with necessarily. They're not things that you you're leveled off at already. This is, I'm already this good at this. No, these things that you can get better at and you can learn them and develop these skills as well. They're not just uh, natural abilities. So that's cool. Yeah. Yep. It gives, and, uh, gives me hope, Gary. I'm being such a weak guy. Yeah, it gives you hope. One thing you do have good is, you know, uh, the mental skill number one is attitude. You, you do have a great attitude. And, and what we all have to remember is attitude is a choice. And, I mean, you think about the hurdles we go through during a given day, uh, during a match out there, or, you know, in, in a given practice. Uh, you know, we come up to a lot of hurdles. And, you know, a lot of times, like we were just talking about getting tapped out, you know, I could... I could be upset about getting tapped out or, you know, my attitude is a choice. I can have a positive attitude and realize that by getting tapped out, you know, I'm going to learn from that. You know, we want to, we want to have a positive attitude, you know, negative is going to bring me down. It's going to bring my teammates down. It's going to bring my coworkers down. It's going to bring my kids and spouses down. So, you know, I have to be positive, um, you know, and, and like Byron said that we can choose that, um, you know, um, another thing he, he talks about in attitude is uh, pursue excellence, not perfection. 
And, you know, it's it's so hard to be perfect. Uh, you know, nobody can be perfect uh, with the exception of Byron. At least that's what he tells me. But, you know. <laughs> You're all over this one, Gary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just, you know, pursue excellence. Try to be the best you can be. And, you know, we're never going to be perfect. We're going to know that. We need to make mistakes to learn. Uh, we are going to learn from our mistakes and failures. But we're going to get right back up. We're going to keep plowing forward. You know, and we're going to try to be the best we can. So definitely pursue excellence and have a positive attitude. Uh, one of the other nine skills they have on here is motivation. Successful athletes are motivated. And one of the, the bullet points, so there's a t- this is a huge article, Gary, but one of the things they have on here about that is realize that there are many benefits to doing a sport, not just the outcome. And I think on this podcast, we've been big about that for years. There are so many benefits to you be on the mat, not just winning a tournament, uh, you know, not just submitting somebody or whatever. There is so much else going on. There's friendships. There's health, fitness. There's uh, it might even help you get a job. Like there's a, there's a there is many many things that jiu-jitsu uh, can do that I can't just list them all off right here off the top of my head. But uh, yeah, having the right motivation, being aware of the the benefits that are coming out of jiu-jitsu or any sport you're trying to do. There's a lot of them, and it's not just necessarily winning a particular event. Well said, Byron. Yeah, can I butcher uh, that? <laughs> <laughs> Byron the butcher. Uh, goals. You know, to become a successful athlete, we have to have goals. You know, goals are going to be short-term, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, having, you know, something specific at practice. Long-term, you know, which might be within the next, you know, six months, uh, you know, placing at a, at a specific tournament. You know, we, we want our goals to be realistic, measurable, and time. You know, we want to have a time on there. We don't just want to say, hey, we're going to be good at jiu-jitsu someday. Uh, you know, when we also have to have, uh, you know, how are we going to get to these goals? Uh, you know, if I want to, you know, win a tournament or a place in a tournament within the next three months, you know, how am I going to get there? How many days a week am I going to practice? Am I going to do some flexibility and, and mobility movements on the side? Am I going to do some strength and cardio work too? Um, am I going to train at, you know, different gyms? Am I going to, you know, to get different training partners and, and, you know, just different things like that. So, you know, I have to have it written down. My, my goals have to be measurable and, you know, like I said, uh, time oriented and realistic. So definitely uh, make sure you've got uh, goals and commitment to those goals. People skills is another big thing to have that helps you. I think that's anything. really big. That yeah. is big. That's, uh, I don't even say huge, Gary. <laughs> but, I could take this a million different ways. Skills with your coach, skills with the teammates, also off the mat people skills. Uh, your family, your friends, uh, other people, uh, coworkers, whatever. Having good social skills, people skills with those people is, is important to your on the mat success as well. If if your spouse doesn't really realize the, the level that you want to get to in jiu-jitsu or perform at, they may not be. They may not feel like they're supportive of you if you haven't explained that very well. You haven't had the social skills to explain uh, what you want to do with your jiu-jitsu. Same thing with with work. They can't believe you're wanting to miss two days to go to a tournament or something like that. Well, you have the time, but maybe they're having a little bit of a conflict with with you know your value system. If you could explain it, it probably helps out a little bit better. Just having those good relationships with people on and off the mat will make your on the mat life smoother, 
much like uh, Gary's skin, very smooth. He lotions that yeah, stuff def- up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that, Barbara. Go to the next uh, bullet point. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm going to do a little self-talk. Um, that's the next bullet point. Um, successful athletes, you know, will talk to themselves. They will, you know, whenever they're having a, running into a hurdle, you know, they're going to use realistic, positive self-talk. You know, they're going to, you know, as we're feeling down, you know, say, hey, this is, this is easy. I can get through this. I'm going to get past this. And, you know, one thing that I've started doing, well, I guess I've been doing it for a couple of years is, you know, I don't really know if it helps or not, but I think it puts me in a good mood when, when I wake up every morning and I say, hey, this is going to be a great day. I just say it out loud as I, as I wake up. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have any studies that prove it, but I, I do think just by starting my day off with, with a positive self-talk that it's, you know, put me, put my mental capacity to, uh, to have a good day. So, uh, it's something that I, I really, you know, think has helped me and, uh, but definitely, uh, self-talk, uh, you know, put yourself in a good mood and, and talk yourself out of bad moods will, uh, uh, you know, take you a long way. Yeah, and there, there's a lot to this article. They have a pyramid explaining where these fit in and what kind of skills they are and you know levels, and they rank them. And uh, I want to do one more on my side, and maybe Gary has another one he's talking about. But the scale, they have it ranked here as number eight, uh, dealing effectively with emotions. And then that's being able to accept the emotions of excitement, anger, disappointment, and all these things, and being able to use those or or to alter them it's a big deal, and it may not be a big deal at any one event, but long-term, being able to, to deal with those properly, like being able to deal with a disappointment properly and, and move on and maybe even use that as motivation later on or or, or just to make that a, a learning experience, that's a pretty big deal long-term to your success. If every time you're at a, uh, a tournament or maybe you're uh, wanting to perform really well, and your emotions get carried away, and you get super nervous, and you can't control yourself, and you don't perform well, you have to learn how to control that and maybe change that nervous energy into excitement. Uh, and it, it, I don't know. There's there's a lot going on with being able to control your emotions and being able to use them or to deal with your emotions. I think that uh, we can learn a lot from this article. Yep, and uh, the very last one they have, number nine, kind of deals with emotions, as Byron was saying, but concentration. And, you know... That's basically paying attention, you know, maintaining your focus, resist distractions. And, you know, it's crazy that, I guess it's not crazy, but one of the things I've probably been most proud of, you know, especially with my son, is when I watch him at practice, uh, you know, from wrestling to, you know, to uh, basketball or or whatever sport he's playing, is it seems like, you know, he, he always pays attention to the coach. He's, he's not goofing around like some of the other kids. And, and, you know, your coach there, Byron, uh, uh, Jake Fox, he does Jake's, uh, conditioning class every summer. And, uh, the thing I'm probably most proud of is not how fast Connor runs or how high Connor jumps. But when Jake tells me that Connor pays attention is very respectful and is, easily coachable those are the things i like to hear and um you know that's probably like the biggest compliment as a father i've i've received you know hearing that from from jake and it's uh you know concentration is a key it's gonna help you uh you know your 
you're staying on task, you're, you're learning what's put in front of you, you're doing what's put in front of you and you're getting better, you know, so definitely uh, stay on task, you know, maintain focus and resist distractions. Yeah. That, that, uh, ability to concentrate is, is huge for athletes and they have a bunch of other things that concentrating and, and all these performance situations will be good for like job interviews. Uh, I mean, you get a similar feeling and a similar, uh, nervousness or anxiety, whatever, getting set on the mat to compete or to do a job interview. You want to perform well and it's, it's dealing with those emotions and, and that, trying to get your body to not mess up and try to get your brain to perform smoothly like Gary's skin. All these things are coming together. You know, it could be taking a test or, or giving a speech or, you know, testifying in court like Gary has to do all the time. I don't know. They, they, they list some stuff here, and that's just a few of them. But being able to, like, getting yourself to perform well is a pretty big deal, and I think we can learn a lot of that skill in jujitsu, and that's really cool. Byron, uh, oh man, I forgot where we're at. I, I, I don't know what we're doing here. I've kind of guess I've been a little distracted. That's true. Yep, yep. Social media, definitely check out uh, BJJ Brick. Uh, we're all over social media. Uh, Facebook is our big one there. Check us out at Facebook. Our emails bjjbrick at gmail dot com. Check us out on our ever growing YouTube channel. Tell all your friends about our YouTube channel. Tell all your friends about our podcast. We really appreciate it. Each and every time somebody mentions that, hey, my buddy Junior told me to uh, uh, listen to the show or check out your Facebook page. So uh, um, we really appreciate it. Yep, and I do appreciate all of our Patreon supporters. I'm going to try to run down the list here. <laughs> this is fun. Uh, Greg, Tim, Rob, Sean, Brad, Mark, Mindy, David, Spencer, Nathan, and Craig, and Gudrun. Thank you so much, guys. That is our team of Patreon supporters. It's not a list of a million names. You know, that's crazy, though. We used to have, like, two Patreon supporters. Yeah, well, we've been on Patreon for well over a year. But uh, That's, hey, it, every every person counts. Yes. It doesn't matter if uh, it's one or a hundred. It's, uh, you know, we're so appreciative of each and every one of, of those people who have uh, helped keep the show afloat. This group of people has literally saved the show uh, at least once, and uh, they are helping to make the show uh, more than just a weekly thing. And we'll get to that uh, maybe in a few weeks as we have further developments with our friend yeah. Joe. But uh, that's you know, a really cool idea that, uh, that that just the money from that is helping to uh, to create. So thank you yeah. so much, Patreon supporters, for your continued support. If you want to be one, uh, there's a video in the show notes or on the website that you can go check out. I explained how Patreon works. But most of the people are kicking us a dollar an episode. It's making huge differences. It's not like there's a thousand of us out there. A small handful, another small handful, or even just one or two more can make a huge difference in the success of this podcast. Yeah, uh, what Byron was saying, you know, it saved the show once. We were uh, <laughs> we were hacked one time uh, with a little bit of pornographic uh, material, and without the support of our Patreon supporters, uh, we would have never uh, been able to afford to uh, get the show back on the road. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the crazy thing is, who would hack a jiu-jitsu site? Like, you know, those are, your arms could get broken. 
you could get put to sleep. Your <laughs> your meniscus could get torn. Uh, it's never a good uh, good thing to you know mess with MMA sites, boxing sites, wrestling sites, jujitsu sites. Uh, you don't know who you're messing with. And uh, you know Byron is a pretty tough guy, so uh, you better watch out if anybody tries to mess with us. Well, honestly, when that whole the big hacking thing uh, came about, it was more. It, it it was there was two sides of it. It was financial. It was a chunk of change to fix the website, and Patreon stepped up and did that. Uh, just having those the supporters uh, there, and and then part of it was just like I guess looking at the article was it like emotional? Like it was super disappointing to work so hard on something for many years, and then you go to the website and it's like oh that's what's happening at the website. It's like are you serious? Like it's just all just taken away, and. So it was like hurtful and disappointing, and and then to have these people that are like, we believe in what you're doing. Here's here's we're willing to support you on this. That was it was not just financially supportive, but but uh, emotionally supportive as well as as them being part of the team. And then when we looked at our website hits, <laughs> then we even got more excited because we got twice as many hits during that week. Um, so uh, kind of worked out pretty good. Yeah, but I asked Gary, and he didn't want to continue down that route. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. But uh, we've talked a lot about this week being grateful, and we're definitely grateful for the Patreon supporters. And we're, the quote was talking about giving gratitude. It's almost the end of the year here, guys, and we're looking for a coach of the year and a blog of the year, jiu-jitsu-related blog of the year. Uh, and and also, I guess I haven't said it yet, jiu-jitsu coach of the year. <laughs> but if and, it, and we're not looking for... Uh, necessarily a coach like like Craig Jones. We're looking for your coach. How has your coach impacted your life? We want like real stories about uh, everyday coach helps people on or off the mat, whatever it is. And tell us your story. Write up a little essay. This is an essay contest. And tell us why this person is important to you, your community, what they're doing to make changes and help people. That's what we want. We're not looking for – if we wanted just the, the biggest names in the sport, we would just award the biggest names in the sport the award and be done with it. But we want to find out your coach. We want to learn about what's happening at uh, you know locally with you. you got to tell us. We can't find out everybody. So that's really what we're looking for. Also with uh, Blog of the Year. If someone's got a cool website that's been motivating to you, it's really meant a lot, it's been impactful – Tell us why. Send us a, the link for sure, but but you need to tell us how this has helped you stay training or help you get better jiu-jitsu or they've been real responsive and helpful uh, You know, with any questions you've had, whatever. If you have a, a website or blog that you like to frequent and they've been super helpful or it means a lot to you, whatever it means, uh, let us know. Set, type up a little essay and tell us why they deserve to get the BJJ Brick Blog of the Year. Last year, uh, we just had the Coach of the Year. We're experimenting a little bit with the blog thing. We made up a, a nice little plaque and uh, did an article and, and had the Coach of the Year on the podcast. Really cool. I'm hoping to do that again this year. Byron, what would be your uh, uh, maybe blog of the year? You know, something that uh, has there been a blog or a website that has really helped you out this year? I mean, that's a tough question. Yeah. I, I can't think of it. Sorry anything. for putting, yeah. No, I'm thinking. You know, has, yeah. is there one for you, Gary? For me, you know, this year, uh, somehow I, I came, you know, I don't know if they have a website, but I've been checking out their Facebook page, but uh, GMB uh, Fitness, and it's a, it's kind of like a mobility uh, 
you know, stretching, you know, website that is, you know, I've incorporated some of the moves. I've read some of their articles and, you know, it's, it's kind of really helped me for, you know, what I I consider longevity for jujitsu, you know, trying to stay healthy. And, uh, you know, that, that website is, uh, well, Facebook site that I go to, they probably do have a website, but, uh, that's really, really something that I've, uh, really taken to this year and has, has really helped me. And I don't know how, you know, it's not like somebody recommended it to me. I must have saw it in my feed one day and uh, really liked the article I read and uh, just went to the page. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, I'm I'm on there, you know, a couple, three times a week checking out articles and videos. So that's definitely helped me out. It was G.M. as in Monteleone? Yep. Okay. Yep. Gary um, Mike, Mike Byron. Byron. <laughs> yeah. Saturday morning crew. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't Mike's website, though, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't know anybody yeah, on the yeah, website. Yeah. I'm not just saying that because, uh, you know, it's somebody I know. It's uh, I have no clue where they're from or, or anything of that sort. But uh, it's definitely helped me out. So what Gary would do if he wanted to give these uh, people like a big thank you is to type up a couple of paragraphs about why GMB's website or their Facebook blog, uh, Facebook blog, Facebook page is really impacting him. And it would be considered for the spot. And so yeah. if it gets it, we would get a hold, a hold of him. Hey, thanks, guys. You did a great job. Uh, you were recommended by Gary and bada boom, bada bing. It's giving thanks to people. Yeah, definitely. I, I like that, giving thanks to people. That's what, the you know, this show's all been about that, you know, giving thanks to people. And giving a uh, audiobook that Gary has to give out here. It's really not the whole book, but it's just part of it. This is the part of the show when... I surprised Gary with a title of an audiobook, and he quickly comes up with some content on the spot and delivers something that we all want to hear more of. Yeah, and you know, this is a time going back to our our nine mental skills. Byron on our on our uncluttered uh, outline basically didn't say we we're going to have one. Yeah, um, I know, I did. It. So he had a throwback mad tale. So he is, you know, he is trying to fluster me, but I will not let that happen because I read the article at sportspsych.org. Stay cool, Gary, and smooth. I'm cool. <laughs> I know you'll be smooth. Oh, yeah, with all that <laughs> lotion I use. <laughs> Gary's audiobook is titled Salsa and BJJ. How my dancing often gets me into fights. I don't know what's going on here, Gary. This seems like a, a bit of an odd book. You know, your salsa dancing career started off pretty good, but there's definitely some viral footage out there of you just ripping it up on the dance floor, uh, no-gi style, uh, not so much dancing. I think maybe your lack of skill, perhaps, in your salsa dancing is the reason why you don't take criticism very well by, by the people who are laughing at you. But I don't know. Gary, what's up with this book? Well, you know, first of all, uh, as you know, I'm a, I'm a big dancer. I, I've won dance contests before, and... Uh, you know, salsa dancing is something I have taken up here recently. I figured I like uh, salsa with my chips, so why wouldn't I like salsa dancing? Um, so we kind of go in the background and, and go through my competition footage, uh, or you know, competition resume of you know all the dance contests I, I've been in and placed. And then we go, you know, we talk about you know how to get in shape for dancing, you know, uh, you know, stretching, uh, you know, working on your feet, stuff like that. But, you know, one of the big things that happens when you become uh, a salsa expert and you go out to clubs is women are attracted to you. I mean, it's a it's a skill that I've never had yeah. before. And that was a big change for you, wasn't it, Gary? 
Yeah, yeah, something I wasn't used to. But what happens when women are attracted to you, men start hating you. You know, because a lot of times you'll steal their girlfriend with the, with your great uh, dancing skills. Um, so basically, I have then had to learn jiu-jitsu um, to take care of myself. So we talk about, first of all, how to use jiu-jitsu in situations, uh, you know, where you're dancing, you know, will make a couple or three guys mad and they'll come at you. So, you know, we'll go through a couple chapters of that. But um, another thing is not just salsa dancing, but any type of dancing will definitely help, you know, with guard passing, takedowns and stuff of that sort. So, you know, we go through that also, um, you know, and there's a Byron had actually put out a video before and it's kind of based off my salsa dancing. It's a, you know, standing guard passing. And uh, I know Byron has put that up on our website before, but, you know, that's another one that really worked well. Um, you know, incorporating these dance drills will make you a better guard passer. So um, maybe I could get Byron to revisit that and put that uh, BJJ black belt guard passing skills video uh, back up on the website. Yeah, I need to get that read circulated. That's one of the curious favorite videos. <laughs> yeah, I've brought it up a couple times. See? I mean, it's I, like I really a, like that. Uh, it's like a, people from the 1980s doing a weird dance. To some funny I tell music. you, the last time you put that up there, one of my training partners basically sent me a text, and he's like, what did I just watch? <laughs> and when you can get uh, emotions like that, you know, people to, to comment with such feelings like that you know you did it right and uh byron you did it right byron's actually the guy with the beard um it's kind of leading the thing so i'd have been so eight at the time but okay so when you do watch it uh you know make sure you know that byron's in there i i couldn't be in that video i was uh i was off that day yes he he was busy learning how to dance yes this was I for the advanced class yeah Yep. Uh, Gary, you mentioned throwback Matt tales. Let's do one anyway. I'll throw it in right here. This is Matt Tales. We bring you amazing jujitsu stories. The stories might be funny, unfortunate. It could be about an epic fail or an epic win. So sit back, my friend. Relax. Dry off your sweat from rolling and enjoy Matt Tales. When I first started training BJJ, for some reason, I wanted to wear socks on the mat. My instructor told me the first night that he doesn't recommend that I wear socks, but I did anyway. The second night I came in, had my socks on, he told me to take the socks off and try grappling. Well, my instructor was correct. Uh, the traction was much better without the socks. I was able to move and flow more freely. So I continued training for several months with no socks on. I train right after work. One morning, when I was in a bit of a hurry to get to work, I ended up just grabbing my gym shorts out of the dryer and threw them into my gym bag so they'd be ready for me that evening. I got to school. I quickly changed into my no-gi clothes and got on the mat. We did our normal warm-up and some drilling, and then it was time for the technique portion of the class. As we're standing there, sweating and breathing heavy, I think the static electricity in my shorts changed, and a single sock fell out of my shorts and landed by my feet. I picked it up, and the instructor noticed me picking up 
a sock. He stopped teaching the technique, and he asked in front of everyone, Why are you holding a sock? We've discussed socks on the mat, and we agree that they are not good. Well, I didn't want to cause any trouble in the class, and I knew that I was not going to cause any trouble in the class because I was not wearing this sock, not wanting to draw any more attention to myself and this sock. I simply said, the sock fell out of my shorts. Upon saying this, I instantly knew it was a mistake. The entire class burst with laughter as they implied that I was using this sock for some sort of male enhancement device inside of my shorts. Well, this was very embarrassing, and they all had good fun at kind of poking at me for the rest of the day, which turned into the rest of the week, and it continued on for the month. As the lint from this joke settled, I ended up landing on the nickname tube sock and it's stuck with me ever since now I have learned a lot in jujitsu arm bars sweeps chokes it's been a lot of fun and I continue to learn every day I've also learned that you cannot get traction while you're wearing socks on the mat you should leave them at home I've learned by my teammates they were graciously enough to teach me how to take a joke And now when I'm at home and I'm doing laundry and it happens sometimes that you lose a sock in the laundry and you end up with just one sock without a pair, now I have something that I could do with that single sock when I go out. This has been Matt Tales. Some of the names and places may have changed. We may in fact have taken some creative liberties with the story. In order to keep Matt Tales going, we need more tales. Tales from listeners like you. Send your tales to bjjbrick at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing your amazing stories. And that was a throwback Matt Tales. We need more stories from our listeners. Crazy juicy stories. Send them in, bjjbrick at gmail.com. I'll make a story like that out of what you send us, hopefully. <laughs> Haven't been able to I'm, use them all, but uh, we're getting a few in, and we're hoping to get another kind of series of these lined up again. Yeah, I mean, the Mad Tales, they're actually funny. I mean, if you have a dojo storm, you have a dojo storm go wrong, you you participate in a dojo storm, you know, let us know. Let us know any of this stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, these things are funny. Gary, um, Gary yeah. just wants the dojo storms. That's what he... His yeah. thing is, he's, he yeah. loves them. No, I say no to Dojo Storm. That's Fire. true. Yep. I say yes to next week, my friend. What do we have next week? Braulio Esteema on the podcast for the first time. You've got to be kidding me. I am totally serial right now, Gary. Awesome. Can't wait. If you yeah. find yourself, for whatever reason, in the area of Wichita, Kansas... Let us know if you want to train. BJJBrick at gmail.com or hit us up on the Facebook page. We'll be happy to try to get some mat time with you. We love rolling with you guys when it is possible, and that's one of the easier ways to do it when you guys travel. When we travel, we'll try to find you as well, but uh, the odds of us coming to where you are are a little bit less. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It happens too. So You know what we we'll should do is when we're getting ready to go on vacation, 
we should say, hey, we're going to be in so-and-so. If anybody's out there, send us a you know email, and uh, we'll try to get together when we're out there. Okay. How do you like that, That's a, You know what? That's a good idea. I Here's, here's the problem Can I've had with that. that. Can you say that again? Can you say that again? Gary had a good idea. Yep. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I don't post when I go on a trip online. Yeah, good call. That's kind of scary. Yeah. Here's the deal. Yeah. I will be in San Antonio sometime in the next couple of months. Let me know. Yeah, that's you, how we if you're say it. if you're in San Antonio, you want to get some mat time. I'll be sure to bring a gear, at least a pair of uh, grappling shorts and some 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 oil. <laughs> and the other. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, hit me up if you're in the area of San Antonio, and possibly even uh, you know between Wichita and San Antonio. That'd be cool. Uh, like to, that'd be fun. So I guess that's the easier way. I'm not going to say you know the date. Hit me up at bjjbrickheads.gmail.com, and I'll work out the date with you if it's at all possible. We'll get some mat time. I'd love to train when I'm there. That'd be awesome. Yeah. And then maybe when you guys are done, you can take Byron out for a large drink of queso. There you go. Gary likes to watch me drink queso until I get sick. <laughs> As always, stay sweaty, my friends. And don't forget to shower. Don't bathe in queso. Never bathe in queso. Unless you've showered. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu.